And this first one is Leviticus 16, a couple of chunks from there, and it's on page 118. Page 118. Leviticus 16, starting at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And now verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood he shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it and in this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites whatever their sins have been And he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them, in the midst of their uncleanness. Our second reading is to be found in Hebrews. Um, So if you turn to page 1206. So page 1206. And the reading is Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 15. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant, This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. 
The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external sorry, external regulations applying until the time of the next order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He, didn't, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Good evening, everyone. Um, I definitely think we should get a sing-along version of that video for the next time. Um, I thought that was uh, great. Uh, We're back in the book of Hebrews that Jane has just read to us, so please uh, keep a Bible open at Hebrews chapter 9. Before we do anything else, let's pray. Lord, this evening that we are grateful. We're grateful that you're real. We're grateful that Jesus Christ is real. We're grateful that your Holy Spirit is real. We thank you that this book in front of us is real and it is the real word of God. We thank you that salvation is real and that we are secure. We thank you for this book of Hebrews, for the author's desire for his readers and your desire for our soul. We thank you that we no longer see shadows. We never see in part where we just don't see glimpses of Christ, but we praise you that we see him in full. And right now he is our high priest interceding on our behalf. Make our hearts soft clay this evening, ready and willing to be shaped to his likeness for his service. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're back in Hebrews and so far the anthem cry of the author of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Jesus is the best. And he's writing to a group of uh, formerly Jewish believers formerly Jewish um, who, people who have now become Christians, and he's writing to them to remind them that Jesus and his message in his gospel is the best. In the face of persecution, these believers might be trying to shy away from Jesus, tempted to revert back to their Jewish ways of thought, their Jewish heritage, and possibly tempted to abandon Jesus altogether. Well, they might have reasoned, well, we, we knew God, didn't we? As Jews, we had access to God. 
back in the laws of the Old Testament. We knew who God was. And in fact, God even gave us a way to deal for our sins through rituals. What have we got need for Jesus for? And our author is running to them and he's just screaming, no. No. Yes, everything you know as a Jew is great. It came from God. God gave you that. But everything in Judaism, all the laws, all the rituals, they all find their fulfillment and completion in Jesus. Have, have you heard of a guy called Moses? Yes, we've, we've heard of Moses. What a faithful man Moses was, but Jesus is even more faithful. Have you heard of a guy called Melchizedek? Yes, he, he was a great priest, wasn't he? Well, Jesus is an even better priest. Have you heard about the Old Covenant? Uh, yes, uh, we got a covenant from God and he, he wrote laws on two big slabs of stone, didn't he? You might have heard of that, but God says that there's going to be a new covenant. Um, a covenant in which words will not be written on stone, but laws will be written inside believers' hearts. And what this author is not doing, he's not ridiculing Jewish beliefs. He's not going, you guys actually believed that, did you? But he's paying great respect and great honour to all of these Jewish heroes. He's saying, isn't it great that you, you used to have to approach God like that? Isn't that amazing? You got to approach God. But let me tell you something else, and it's going to be hard to believe this, but there's actually a better way to get to know God. There's a better way to approach him. He's called Jesus. He's the best. He's the best king. He's the best prophet. He's the best covenant maker ever full stop. And it might be hard for us sitting 2,000 years after this letter is written to actually get our minds into the, the space of the original hearers. Um, I don't think anybody here is Jewish tonight. I don't know if anybody's been brought up Jewish here this evening. I haven't. But imagine being a, a Jewish person with Jewish beliefs. And imagine being told that all of a sudden, all your rituals, all your ideas, all your theology had changed. It wasn't nullified. It, it wasn't thrown out or disproved. But the focus of your religion was now suddenly directed towards Jesus. The Messiah who you'd been waiting on, but you just maybe hadn't quite seen him, hadn't come in the way that you had expected and now all those people that you held up so high, like Moses and Melchizedek, all pale in comparison to Jesus. Those amazing Jewish holy days, those feasts, those family times, all those find their familiar from fulfillment in Jesus. It's hard to understand just how big a shift this is for these believers, these Jews who became Christians, how different this is to what they had believed before. And we find ourselves right in the middle, near the end of this argument of the, the writer of Hebrews. This Jesus is better. Jesus is better than, insert subject here. So far we've had Jesus is uh, better than Moses. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than the priests. And tonight the subject is the tabernacle. The place where God is to be worshipped. And the author's going to look at two things. He's going to look at the um, old covenant and he's going to look at the new covenant. What did ministry look like under the old covenant? And what does ministry look like under the new covenant? And the description that we've just read, that Jane just read us, thank you Jane, comes back all the way from the time of the Israelites. The time when these people were walking uh, around the desert. Nomadic people living in tents. And the tabernacle was a tent that they were to erect, to put up, as a place that they would meet with God. I'd encourage you tonight or this week, spend some time reading Exodus 25 to 30 and just see um, how this whole process goes about. Um, how God gives instructions for how he wants the tabernacle to look, what's supposed to be in it and all those instructions. It's amazing how much detail. We'll get onto those in a little second um, as well. But this was the place where the people could meet with God. 
That every year the high priest would come and they would make atonement for the people's sins. That every day there would be rituals of cleansing, priests going in and out. There these people were meant to meet with God. And we get a really good description of it here. And it's probably these believers listening to this description going, yeah, that's right. That little lamp was there and that table was there and there was the, the altar there. And they're probably getting a lot of nostalgia from this guy, uh, from the author writing um, to him. Look at verse 1. It says that this covenant had regulations. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The reason all this furniture that we're going to look at in a second is in, in this tabernacle is it because it's because it's how God said he wanted to be worshipped. All these things exist in this tent because God said that they had to be there. And it's really important because between new and old covenant, we worship God how God tells us to worship him. God doesn't say, Moses, what do you think? What's the best way to worship me? He doesn't say, Aaron, what do you think? You're the high priest. You might have a few good ideas. He doesn't say, assemble a committee of Israelites and decide how you're best going to worship me. But instead what he does is he tells them exactly how he wants to be worshipped. He says, I don't want your creativity. I don't want your ideas. What I want from you is your obedience. In this covenant, like the new covenant, there is a pattern of worship that must be followed to appropriately worship God. Not only is there a pattern, but there's also a geographical location. There's an earthly place at the end of verse 1, an earthly sanctuary. Because in the old covenant, to worship God, you had to go to this tent. A little bit later on, if you wanted to worship God, you had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You had to get there by walking or by camel or by whatever it means you could. If you wanted to worship the true living God, you had to get up and you had to go to a physical place. But that's not so with the new one. There's no place that we have to go to to worship God. No temple, no tabernacle, even this building. We don't have to come here to worship God. In the new covenant, not only is the law written on our hearts, but the spirit dwells inside us. So that wherever we go, we are temples of God. Whenever I wake up in the morning, God is with me. Whenever I go to bed at night, God is with me. Whenever I spend the whole night asleep, God is with me. What an amazing thought that is. Imagine being restricted to one place to worship God. And now as Christians, we have the freedom of worshiping God wherever we go. And then the author from verse 1 onwards turns his attention to the contents. To the the lampstand, to the table with the bread, and to the holy place with the altar made of gold and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. Inside the ark we find the manna, we find Aaron's staff that budded, we find the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. And surprisingly after this he says, I can't go into much detail, and I'm kind of like, well you pretty much just have went into a lot of detail. Um, But maybe not to a Jew who'd been brought up with all of these things going over in the head, knowing exactly where all these things were in the tabernacle and what their purposes were. But why all these things? Why do all these things exist? If you look back at chapter 8, verse 5, um, which says, They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Yes, there was a real physical lump sun and a real physical altar that were real things in a real place. But that's not just it. All those things were just shadows of what actually was going on in heaven. All those things were just shadows, just glimpses of a greater thing to come. A greater truth to be revealed. And God wants his people in this time 
to stick to these rules, to be obedient, to worship him how he wants to be worshipped. Because it's by obedience that these people survive. Their nation and their future depend on how they obey God. And the reason they have a fascination, the reason they um, have um, a a spot where the temple and the tabernacle uh, holds in their heart is because it's so important and so central to the worship of God. Without these rituals, without these sacrifices, there would be no hope at all. They would be wiped off the face of the earth. But these sacrifices don't fully atone for their sins, but they hold back God's wrath. And that's, what we, and that's why you see this continually happening. Look at verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. We see priests going in and out, to and fro. Who was being driven a little bit crazy by that repeating melody in that song? And the reason that song is doing that is because it's going in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, over and over. These priests had to keep doing what they were doing, otherwise God would consume his people. There was no rest from the work of these priests. Every year, every day, every week, every month, for hundreds and hundreds of years, a continual sacrifice, sin never fully being atoned for. So the continuous work of a priest is needed. That's why it was a job of an entire tribe for generations to be priests. And it's interesting, what, what is the priest doing? What is the high priest doing when he goes in on the Day of Atonement? In verse 7, he goes in and he offers a sacrifice for his sins, but he also sacrifices um, an offering for the sins that people had committed in ignorance. We have lots of different types of sins. Um, There are sins that we know we're sinning, willful sinning. Um, There are sins that we don't know that we... um, so the sins we do things, so whenever we, we do something, we might sin. So we uh, sin by lying or cheating or by murdering or by stealing. But there's also sins that we don't do something. What the Book of Common Prayer calls uh, by doing things, or by, sorry, give me a second, by leaving, by, sorry, we're here now. By what we have left undone, sins that, um, that things that we haven't done. But this draws his attention to another type of sin. A sin that we don't even know we're committing. There's types of sin that just pass us by in everyday life. Sins that we don't even notice that they're going on. So whenever we come before God to confess our sins, we can say, today, God, I I didn't do this and I did do this. But there are sins that just we never take notice of because we're unconsciously doing them. And it's for that sin that the high priest is going there, for the sins that people don't know that they have committed. That's just an encouragement for us. Whenever we come before God, That way say sorry for the sins we've committed, for the things that we've left undone, but also for the sins that we're not even aware of. Let's look at verse 8 together. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle uh, was still functioning. What's going on in that verse? What does that mean? Uh, Look back at verse 3 and you'll see the mention of a curtain. And this is what the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to. It's what it's bearing witness to in verse 8. It had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. 
You might be a little bit surprised that the Holy Spirit was in the desert of this tabernacle. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a, a purely New Testament person of God we see at work. But the Holy Spirit is at work in, in the tabernacle of the Old Testament as well. But it's even more exciting what the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to. Saying that the way is not yet open. That architecturally, because there is a curtain in this tabernacle, this can't be the end solution. God is still separated by a curtain from his people. That can't be the end. That can't be the solution. That's not the perfect way to deal with sin. And that just goes to show that all the sacrificing, all the rituals, weren't properly cleansing the people's sin. Because if they were, there would be no need for a curtain. The Holy Spirit here is testifying that there must be a new way. A new way that will come through Jesus. A new way for God to relate to his people. A new way in which nothing will separate us from God. Let's look at verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. And again, this speaks to the limited nature of the tabernacle. That the rituals, the sacrifices were not final. Are they important? Yes, they are. Are they commanded of God? Yes. Are they necessary? Yes. They hold back the wrath of God, but they do not perfectly um, make the worshipper clean. They don't make his conscience cleansed. They don't reach inside a person and clean him from the inside out. And again, that's why these rituals are being continued back and forward, back and forward, over and over again. This old system, this old covenant does not deal with sin. And all of it is crying out for something new. That's the old covenant. A covenant that worked, a covenant that was given by God for these people. But a covenant that was not perfect. Look at verse 11. First four words, but when Christ came, and with those four words, everything changes. The old has gone and the new has come. And immediately the author can't wait to get stuck. And immediately this author tells us why Jesus is better. Because where did he go? Did he go through a tent in the desert? No. He went through a perfect tabernacle, one that's not made with human hands. Reminding us that this old tabernacle was just shadows and glimpses, just a representation of heaven. But Christ went through the real one, the true one, the heavenly tabernacle. Not the old one in which the believers, the worshippers weren't really made clean, but the perfect one. And this is in heaven itself. Not something earthly pointing to something heavenly, but the most holy place of all before God himself. This is where Christ enters into this tabernacle. But not only does it go in, he doesn't go in and go out and go back in, then come out again, then go back in. What does he do? He does it once. Once for all. Verse 12. Which is a great contrast to those priests every day getting up, every day going in, every day sacrificing animals to make sure that people are clean, to make sure that people are acceptable before God. But how much better, how much more perfect is that Jesus enters at once and on that one time going in, He deals with all the sin. He's not sacrificed over and over again, but once for all humanity, for all time, forever. For those Old Testament believers dealing way, way back, Jesus cleanses them, he forgives them, even though they're only seeing glimpses as to what God is doing. But for all history, Jesus dies once. That's why we don't have a tabernacle. That's why this evening when you came to church, you didn't bring a goat or a bird That's why this is called a communion table and not an altar, because Jesus died once 
for all. And that's amazing because in those words we find rest. That it's done. It is finished. There's no more work to be done. Christ has paid the price for our sins. And Jesus doesn't enter this place with a a bowl of animal's blood. He doesn't enter this place with the blood of another person, but he enters it with the blood of himself. A costly price has to be paid. His own blood. And what is his own blood? Well, it's human blood. How amazing is that, that uh, in Jesus we find the perfect human? Perfect human blood. Jesus was tested like we are, but never once did he give in to sin. He was perfectly obedient to God in what he did. He was perfectly obedient to God in what he didn't do. And he would made no sins of ignorance. The perfect human winning the salvation for all of mankind. Obtaining eternal redemption. And this is a total purification. Not just like the old one. Not just the, the outside being cleansed. And not just because we've ate some pork. Um, or because we've touched something that is dead, not just an external cleansing of the people, but an internal cleansing of the people, dealing with that sin from the inside. Remember in Matthew 15, I think verse 11, um, Jesus said it's not what goes into a person's mouth that uh, makes them unclean, but it's what comes out. And Jesus reaches in and he cleans people from the inside out, something the old tabernacle could not do. Let's look at our final verse, verse 15. We find the word therefore. And it's like a little flashing light, this little word therefore. Because all that we've just read, not just in this passage, but all the weeks before, all the chapters before, the fact that Jesus is better is being summed up in this little sentence. That Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And normally when we think of a mediation, we imagine two parties with completely irreconcilable differences. Um, somebody who's maybe two different political parties, two different sports teams, employees, employers. Um, you can make the rest of the list up. And what a mediator does is he meets with both parties, he sits down, he talks to them, he says, well, what's your problem? What do you need done? What do you want? What will make you go back to work? He goes to the other party, he asks them the same questions, and he goes home and he thinks about what he's going to do. And the thing he thinks of is, how can I make these both people, these both parties compromise? But that's not what Jesus does at all. Jesus doesn't go to try to persuade God to compromise. Jesus knows that God is perfectly right in his holy and just law that he should not let sinful people enter. One party is God, a holy, magnificent, awesome God, and the other side are sinful humanity. So Jesus doesn't just make an agreement, make a deal between two people, but he actually is the deal. He is the mediator. He himself is the new covenant and he sustains it by means of his death on the cross. Why? What's, what's good about this? Not only do we have peace with God, but what else, what else do we get? Well, we get an inheritance, an inheritance from God, an eternal inheritance. Through Jesus' death, we receive life. The chance to be called children of God, to know him, to have access to him, and to be with him in perfection one day. Jesus is far better than any tabernacle, any temple, any Old Testament covenant. Hopefully you agree with that from what we've looked at this evening. 
that he's a better priest, a better sacrifice given once for all. And for a former Jew reading this, it's where we've done wonders for their heart. It's where we've done wonders for their attitude, the reassurance that he has been given. That your old system didn't work, but behold, there's a new one that really does work. That Christ and Christ alone are the way that you can be forgiven, have your sins atoned for. And 2,000 years later, this message is no less amazing, no less brilliant. And it's no less amazing because the question never changes. The question of how can sinful people know a holy God? How can people with stained consciences get to know a God who is perfect in every single way? And what's even more amazing is that we have the answer. It's Jesus, the mediator of this covenant who offers forgiveness to anybody who comes to him to ask for it. Maybe this evening you've got a sin weighing you down. Something you know that you do and you know it's wrong and you can't seem to shake it. In the back of your mind you're going, you know, God really doesn't actually accept me because I do this. But here tonight there is good news because God does. There is a new covenant with Jesus who cleanses a person 100%, makes you whiter than snow. There's no sin too big, no sin too difficult that Jesus can't atone for. So this week, tonight, take great and deep joy. To know that there's a saviour who is on your side. A saviour who paid the price. And a saviour who offers you to come to him for forgiveness. Let's pray. Father we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this new covenant. We thank you that Jesus is better than anything else. Better than any Old Testament character. Better than any Old Testament piece of furniture. Better than anything else we can imagine in our wildest dreams. We just pray this evening that we would know in our hearts, in the deepest part of our being, that we are fully washed and fully cleansed from our sin if we trust in him. We ask for grace, we ask for perseverance this week to walk closely and have deep joy in the knowledge that we know you through what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.